Uh, for those of you who have been with us, we are in an ongoing series in the Gospel of Mark. Last year, we started the first part of that series, uh, which took us through the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And just a couple weeks ago, we started what will be the full kind of exposition of the second half of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the series that we're in is called The Last Days of Jesus Christ. The second half of the Gospel of Mark deals with the last eight days of Jesus' life. That's where we are. That's where we've been. And that's where we'll continue to be. But this morning, uh, I want to sort of take the pendulum and swing it to the other side. And you can see that on the front of your program uh, in a sermon called The First Day of Jesus Christ. So we're in a series, The Last Days of Jesus Christ. And what I want to look at is the first day of Jesus Christ. And I'm doing that for a specific reason. And it's not to just fill up the next 60 minutes. I'm doing that for a specific reason, and we're considering a doctrine that many of us will be familiar with and then also will be new to several of us as well. This belief, this doctrine, has been profoundly significant throughout Christian history, and it's especially meaningful for us today in the 21st century, and this is why it's especially meaningful for us, because we have such a warped and flimsy and malleable understanding of personal identity, of individual identity. Why, just this week, I don't know if any of you follow uh, streams that would show you this or if you heard this, but an infamous name returned to the headlines when news broke that Rachel Dolezal had just signed a publishing deal for a book that she'll be writing on racial identity. And Rachel Dolezal, if you guys remember who this gal is, was the former Spokane chapter president for the NAACP and an African studies professor, get this, a woman born to white parents, a white mother, and a white father who self-identifies as black. She's quoted as saying, how I feel is more powerful than how I was born. A malleable understanding of our Identity. Miss Dolezal's comments about her identity summarize this rising tide of misinformation and misunderstanding that's so apparent in our culture today. Again, the title of my sermon is The First Day of Jesus Christ, and what we'll be looking at is the very essence of the person of Jesus. Namely, we're considering the incarnation. And don't check out there if you think you know what that means. We're considering the incarnation. If you will, go ahead and open up in your Bibles or on the City Church app to the Gospel of John chapter 1, and you can place your thumb there. I'll return there in just a second. As I proceed this morning, just so it's clear in your mind, I'm going to be asking three questions in order. And the first question that I want to ask is, what is the incarnation? That will be followed by, what does the incarnation teach us about God and ourselves, and then we'll conclude with the question, why was an incarnated God necessary? So those are my three questions, and I'm going to let you know, I'm going to spend more time in certain questions, so don't feel like, man, this dude's been going on in 20 minutes for this one section. It is a wrap if he spends this much time in all of the sections. So those are the three questions that I'm going to ask, and I'll begin with the first. What is the incarnation? Incarnate is a, it's a Latin word meaning to make flesh. In summary, and this is what you guys may be familiar with, the incarnation is the teaching that God became man 
in the person Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, Jesus is simultaneously divine and human, or fully God and fully man. While the word incarnation isn't in the Bible, we see the concept clearly in Scripture, uh, and no more clearly than in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, if you want to go ahead and find verse 14, where the writer says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh. Now, John chapter 1, verse 1 states, In the beginning was, again, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are a few things that I want you to notice here that I want to draw all of our attentions to. The Greek word for word is lagos. Lagos. The Greek used here for God is theos. Theos means true God. The Bible tells us that the Lagos was both with Theos, true God, and the Lagos was Theos, true God. So if we plug in those words into this sentence, this is how it will read. In the beginning was Lagos, and Lagos was with Theos. Lagos was with God, and Lagos was Theos. The word was the true God. And you guys are like, okay, why do you keep repeating yourself, man? Jesus, or I'm sorry, John seems to be drilling down on the identity of Jesus, the man Jesus, as Theos, as true God, fully God, and yet fully man. So again, because Jesus, the Word, was fully God, with God and God, since the beginning, because of that, on the first day of Jesus Christ, when he was born, that wasn't like the first tick on the clock of his existence, right? That wasn't his starting point or his jump off. Jesus existed in and throughout all of eternity prior to becoming a human being. Jesus was God and was with God. Now, back to verse 14, which you have marked there. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the message translates it, the word became flesh and blood, and I loved this, and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. As I studied this, I I remembered an experience that I had that just seemed to remind me so much of uh, the incarnation. And look, uh, let me say before I get into the illustration, it's just an illustration, okay? It can't capture the incarnation of God into man. It is just an illustration, so give me some creative license up here. This is just... An illustration. I'm trying to save y'all from emailing me. I can't believe you use that. This not a, okay. So I was born in 1984, right? And I was raised on the rap music of my uncle and my older brother Scott. So like uh, Two Live Crew and N.W.A., Snoop Dogg, gangster rap, and the like. I was raised on that rap music. So by the time Outkast released their first album in 1994. Southern Playlistic Cadillac Music, I was hooked. And then in 96, Outkast released Atelians. And then in 98, Outkast released Aquemini. And like, good night, I loved Outkast. For the few of you uh, who don't know who Outkast is, because I know there are only a few of you. 
Outkast is heralded as one of the best rap groups of all time, made up of two members, uh, Big Boy and Andre 3000. You guys are like, what does this have to do with the incarnation? You're typing the email to me already. Please rock with me. If there's one group that I liked more than any other rap group, it was Outkast. If there's one of the rappers that I dug more than the other, it's Andre 3000. Andre was just so influential on my life. I mean, as a young man, especially even as I get older, because, and, and dig this, because of his word. Andre was influential because of his word. Yeah, his style was dope, and I loved how he seemed to embrace himself, willing to break the molds of what was expected from a rapper and a man, both from hip-hop culture and culture at large. I I dug that, but what I really appreciated about him was, again, his words were just so spectacular, beautiful, introspective, complex, challenging, creative words. Andre's words were all that I possessed of him. You tracking with me? You can say something. I know we're in church. You tracking with me now? Okay. And I've said for a long time, I mean, I don't think I'm the coolest guy, but like, I think I'm pretty cool. But if there's someone that is really cool that I would be like smitten by or, you know, kind of shake and shiver to meet, it's Andre 3000. So here's where it gets good. Last year I was in Atlanta hanging out with my friend Dan, doing some work for a website called Fourth District. We were at a coffee shop. Beautiful day, kind of like today, enjoying a cup of coffee, hanging out on the porch. And then, I had to double check. I was like, what? And then I'm stammering to ask Dan this question. Is that Andre 3000? Sure enough, Andre 3000 was just strolling across the parking lot into the same coffee shop that we were in. And in that moment, I saw something of the incarnation. The word became flesh in that moment. The word of Andre 3000, which I was so familiar with, which I've been raised on, which I could recite in that very moment, embodied in flesh and blood right before my eyes, strolling across the parking lot, or as the message said, moving into the neighborhood. The word became flesh. God steps out of all eternity and incarnates in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, enters the world through the womb of a virgin, and all of human history is marked by the first day of Jesus Christ. This is the incarnation. You guys feel like I let you down on that story? All right, here's what happened. So I'm sitting there with Dan. And I'm freaking out. I'm shivering. I'm shaking. Andre's in there. He's like just having a cup of coffee. I mean, doesn't Andre do more spectacular things than drink drink a cup of coffee? 30 minutes pass. I'm 30 years old. 30 minutes pass before I can muster up the courage to go and introduce myself to Andre 3000. And I'll flash this picture up. He was willing enough to take a selfie with me. Long live Andre 3000. Okay. So this leads me to my second question. First, what is the incarnation? Second, what does the incarnation teach us about God and ourselves? The incarnation gives us three insights about God. The first insight, and you can jot this down, God is known. God is known. Now, immediately, some of you may be thinking, uh, there is no God. And I don't want to discount your objection, uh, but unfortunately, you know, I got limited time and I didn't put time in to work with that thought. So, admittedly, we're moving away from the atheistic framework. Other objections include agnosticism. Not that God is unknowable, 
but it's unknowable if there is a God. That's what the agnostic would say. Naturalism, since there's no empirical objective evidence or proof that God exists, then he doesn't exist. He can't be known. What's fascinating about all of those different worldviews, those frameworks, is that it places the responsibility of knowing God onto us, onto men and women. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells us that God has made himself known. The Bible is, after all, God's revelation of himself. Revelation, God has revealed himself to men and women. And again, this is the first point In the incarnation, God has made himself known. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to another scripture that will be up on the screen. It's Colossians 1.15 and 19, which reads, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation in verse 19 reads, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And let's just let that slide sit up there for a minute. This sounds a lot like the beginning of the Gospel of John, which we just looked at, his account. Remember what we just saw, Lagos and Theos? This sounds similar to that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We do know, and we can know God truly. We do know God truly, and we can know God truly in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is known. Which brings me to the second insight that the Incarnation gives us about God. First, God is known. Second, God is near. Now, admittedly, uh, we see this reality throughout the Scripture, that God is near. In fact, we see it early on uh, in the earliest account of the Scripture, in the book of Genesis. uh, Chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that God made man and woman in his image. And then verse 28 immediately tells us that he blesses them. And that's the first indication that we have of nearness and intimacy between God and mankind. And a lot of people trip. And if this is you, I'm kind of talking to you right now. A lot of people trip and they say, well, sure, but that was before the fall. That was before sin entered the world. God can have intimacy and nearness with God because sin hadn't happened yet. Well, even after the fall, and the fall is the rebellion and the sin and the disobedience of Adam and Eve against the single verbal mouth-to-ear command of God to not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and then surely die because of it. How does God interact with Adam and Eve after they rebel, after the fall? In the words of Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty, Does God, the almighty smiter, smite them? Does fire and brimstone crash out of heaven and destroy them in the moment of their rebellion? Do they bite into the apple and suffer anguish immediately? No, none of that happens. In fact, Genesis 3, 8, again, after the fall, tells us that God strolls into the garden. God walks into the garden, initiates a conversation with sinful Adam and Eve, invites a confession from them, and then he kills them. That doesn't happen either. He explains to them the consequences of their sin, which cause each of them personal and unique suffering. 
and then causes separation from God, disturbs the intimacy that they had in relationship with God in the garden. He takes the life of an innocent animal accounting for their sin and then cloaks them in garments that he made for them as he sent them out of the garden. Don't miss this. Even after the fall, after sin had entered the earth, had entered the human experience, and the God-man relationship, still God is near. Even after the fall, God is near. We continue to find this theme throughout the Old Testament. The Lord draws Abraham near to himself to create a people, Israel, who he desires to draw near to himself. The Lord himself draws near to all of the prophets. And the Psalms account for his nearness time and again. We'll put three Psalms up on the screen. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. This is so beautiful. The nearness of God is my good. What is your good? The nearness of God is my good. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. The Lord's nearness. But something unique does occur on the first day of Jesus Christ. God's nearness is personified. God's nearness becomes person. God's nearness becomes human. And check this. God's nearness comes wrapped in weakness, inability, dependence, need, want, infancy. I'm going to pause and just let you guys think about that for a second. God's nearness comes wrapped in weakness. If you have a view of God that doesn't include that, I would suggest that you have an incomplete view of God. That his nearness comes wrapped in weakness. This brings us to the third insight that the incarnation shows us about God. Which is, God is not naive. And if you're rushing to judgment right now, I want to tell you to slow your horses. This is where some of you guys are like, yeah, you're going to finally start preaching. God is not naive. Let's bring it. We think incorrectly if we hold out the idea that Christ suffered once for sins and yet get excited about the notion that God punishes the sins of those who we dislike, or we disagree with, or we feel so different than. Or if we look forward to Judgment Day for the people, and you guys know how this saying goes, for the people who there's a special place in hell for. We think incorrectly because their sins are so bad that they must suffer an eternal punishment. See, we think differently if we or incorrectly if we think that Christ has suffered once for sins, and yet we hold out and hope for the suffering of men and women for their sins. Hebrews 4 tells us in verse 13 that nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is not naive. He sees everything. The most vile of our actions, the very actions that we humans humans judge and condemn for which we believe there is a special place in hell for. God is not naive. He sees that. But here's the kicker. Not only does God see everything, but he knows everything. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. Not only our vile actions, but the most vile of our thoughts as well, to which we choose not 
to act on, not because we're better than the people who do choose to act. In a lot of circumstances, it's because those people just don't have the courage to actually do the things that they daydream about, the vile things that they think about. And this is a subtle uh, but profound teaching of Jesus that the most egregious sin can actually be unseen. The most egregious sins can actually be unseen, which is why he says that the one who lusts is guilty of committing adultery and the one who hates is guilty of committing murder. And so in the teaching of Jesus, the most respectable sinner who is self-righteous and thinks that they're so different, so much better than the bad, vile sinners, is confronted by the reality that the special place in hell they're holding out for others may actually be for them. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there, nor does the writer of the book of Hebrews. We continue in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, because God sees everything and knows everything, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. The incarnation teaches us something fascinating about God, that God was tempted in every way. I want you to think about how you've been tempted this week. Not long. Don't think long about how you were tempted this week, but I want that to come to your mind. How were you tempted this week? Or maybe how were you tempted this morning? How were you tempted while we were singing songs? And how have you been tempted even in the time of me preaching right now? God in Jesus has been tempted in every way. God in Jesus has been tempted in every way. God made himself flesh to empathize with our weakness, our humanity, our brokenness, the part of your person that plagues you and your relationships, the part of your person that's detrimental to your success, the part of your person that recklessly inhibits your health, the part of your person that you curse and loathe and hate as you look in the mirror. God empathizes with my weakness. He empathizes with your weakness. Does that make anyone want to say amen? God empathizes with our weakness. God is not naive. He has been tempted in every way, and yet what the Bible teaches us about the incarnated Jesus is that while he was tempted, he did not sin, which is why He is our high priest, which is why he has that role. Seated at the right hand of God the Father, even now allowing us to, as we read in Hebrews 4, 16, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Put this in your pocket, all right? This is free. It's not going to cost you anything. The next time you find yourself tempted, go to God's throne. Receive mercy. Receive grace. We so often take our temptation and we say, oh no, and we run from God as if we're wrong and evil and wicked for being tempted. Take your temptation and your moments of despair and go to him. Find grace and find mercy at his throne. God is not naive. This leads us to one final insight that the incarnation teaches us about ourselves. We've seen three things that it teaches us about God and now one thing that it teaches us about ourselves. 
When God took on human flesh, he personified that. And here's the point. Personhood is not our problem. Personhood is not our problem. Humanity is not our problem. People have long been plagued by their humanity. Long been plagued. We self-aggrandize to validate ourselves. We self-assess to assure ourselves. We self-deprecate to judge ourselves. We self-destruct to sabotage ourselves. We self-mutilate to punish ourselves. And we self-medicate to cure ourselves, at least momentarily. And if it doesn't work, then at least we don't have to think about ourselves. We can escape ourselves. We can forget ourselves. Admittedly, uh, religion is often used as a cure-all, a tool to cure our humanity. Some uh, medicate on religion, which is what Karl Marx said, and we'll bring that up on the screen as well. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Oppressed people, self-consumed people. In, in my line of work uh, specifically, I have the distinct privilege of being able to build deep, meaningful uh, relationships, intimate relationships with just a whole host of different people. People who come from different places, uh, geographically, ethnically, socioeconomically, people who have different worldviews and theologies, different values and goals. I mean, you get the picture. Uh, and just in the last few months, it seems that I've known one of each of them who have contacted me or we've had conversation about self-hatred and even suicide. So it's not like the Christians are fine and the atheists are doing really bad. It's not like the married people are healthy and happy and the single people are struggling. I mean, one of each of these people, it feels, have contacted me about the same issue. Their humanity, their personhood, their brokenness to a point of hating themselves and even thinking about killing themselves. Humans are plagued by their humanity. But the incarnation teaches us that personhood is not our problem. Our humanity is not our problem. What I'm saying is that self and sin are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. However subtle, there is a distinction between self and sin. And while ourselves are riddled with sin both the cause and the consequences of sin, we human beings are not sin. It's like a cancer that affects us. We're the host. We're not the cause. We are not sin. Which is why God was able to become a human and not contradict his holiness. After all, the incarnation teaches us that Jesus was, again, fully God and fully man. God is not naive about our condition our experience, our temptations, our struggle. Again, Hebrews 4.15, which we just looked at, reads, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way and yet did not sin. In which we discover the answer to our third and final question, in which we come to a conclusion with, with. Why was an incarnated God necessary? So we've seen what is the incarnation. We've saw some things that it teaches us, the incarnation about God, one thing it teaches us about man. And now the third question is, why was an incarnated God necessary? 
And I've even talked with some people uh, this week that seem to echo this thought. Whether or not you find yourself believing right now uh, that God became flesh in Jesus, whether or not you find yourself believing that, some people may think, isn't that a little bit much? I mean, God became human. Isn't that like a little bit intense? God walking onto the human stage is like, you know, Kobe Bryant strolling over to the open gym at the YMCA while a middle school basketball game is going on. Or if you remember from last week, you guys remember Rocket Arm? You guys remember Jeff, Rocket Arm? It's like Rocket Arm stepping into a t-ball game and throwing a, throwing a fast pitch. It's a bit much, isn't it? God becoming a human. I mean, honestly, how big could the issue be that required God to step out of all eternity and take on the likeness of his creation? Well, how, you know, again, how, how big could the issue be that required God to do that? Let's briefly return to Genesis. I mentioned in the first couple of chapters of Genesis that after the fall, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, when God is explaining the consequences of their sin, remember we talked about that, the individual suffering and the separation, he says something fascinating to the serpent. God says something fascinating to the serpent, who we understand to be Lucifer or Satan in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you see that? Here we find the first prophecy foretelling the incarnation, the offspring of of the woman will crush Satan, while Satan will strike the offspring of the woman. Do you guys see that? Again, I asked the final question. Why was an incarnated God necessary? Why was he necessary? In short, the answer is sin. I'm not trying to be a downer or return to another concept that we think is outdated and past us, you know, postmodern people. The answer is sin. Human beings sin. Adam had one command. He had one thing that he had to abide by. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree or you will surely die. And he failed, not a little bit, not on a bell curve. He failed entirely, completely. I mean, how can't you keep one command? The same way my wife asked me to pick my shoes up like every day. I can't do it. How do you fail just to keep one command? Because to err is human. To err is human. In time, God would reveal the Ten Commandments. And a lot of times you look at that like, man, what a bummer. What a downer. The Ten Commandments or the law was a measure of grace for the people of Israel. It was a measure of grace for all people. Because, as the Apostle Paul would later write, the law allows us to see our inability to keep it. It allows us to measure ourselves against the holiness of God and see that we are utterly incapable of being like him, of attaining to his statutes, his laws, his commands. The law devastates us. The law crushes us. For the people who are interested in religion in this room, do you, um, do you sense that? Do you feel that as you try to navigate your relationship with God based on your performance? And we don't have to admit it verbally. You don't have to say anything to me. But don't you sense your utter inability to please God, to keep his law, to keep his commands? Be crushed by that. Be devastated by that. And I know that's not good news, but that uh, brings along the good news. And 
There is good news. We do have good news, even though we need to be devastated and crushed by the law. In the words of Tulian Chavidjan, uh, he is Billy Graham's grandson. In his words, the gospel declares that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus met all of God's holy conditions so that our relationship with God would be wholly unconditional. Do you need a relationship where love and acceptance is wholly unconditional? I do. The demand maker became a demand keeper and died for me, a demand breaker. An incarnated God, and let that one stay up, an incarnated God is necessary because we are entirely incapable of meeting God's holy conditions. He is a demand maker. We are demand breakers, but the incarnated God, the person of Jesus, has kept all of God's demands perfectly for everyone, for all people. He died for all sin, he lived for all righteousness, and we can access what he's done by believing on him. One more quote from Tullian Chavidjan. God, in fact, is not the God of second chances. He is the God of one chance and a second Adam. I want to read that one more time. God, in fact, is not the God of second chances. He is the God of one chance and a second Adam. Because God is holy, without sin, faultless, righteous, pure, and just, mankind had one chance, which Adam wasted away in disbelief that led to disobedience. And we are Adam's kin. We are human. He is the head of the human lineage. We inherit his sinful condition. We inherit it. So even if, you know, there's a couple different layers to this. We could live our lives out trying to be righteous, trying to be good, trying to obey. We could live our lives in action, right? And we might, like several people that Jesus interacts with, say, oh, I'm faultless before the law. I've kept all of the commands. I've done what I have to do. That's the outward expression of righteousness. But then we see the inward, right? So even if we keep all of the commands and do all of the things we think we have to do, we're still confronted with the nastiness of our hearts and our thoughts and the condemnation that we express towards others, again, the hate that Jesus calls murder, um, the lust that Jesus calls adultery. So outward sin and inward sin, and even if we were perfect in both of those regards, which I'm not, and I don't know if y'all are, I don't think you are, I know enough of you, but even if we're perfect in both of those regards, we find ourselves in the lineage of Adam. We inherit his sin. We're stuck from the jump. The game is rigged. We are born into condemnation. We're born into it. But the Bible tells us what Tullian captured in the last quote. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus has succeeded in all of the ways that Adam failed. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed. Jesus believed where Adam disbelieved. Earlier, we read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 19. I'm going to bring that back and then add one more piece on there, verse 20 as well. Colossians 1, 15, 19, and 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him, Jesus reconciled to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's the prescription right there. How does God justify? How does God give us righteousness? How does God account? He makes peace through the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed on the cross. This is why an incarnated God was necessary to be for us what we could never be by ourselves, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to reconcile us back to himself through his blood shed on the cross. When he became our sin so that we could become his righteousness by believing upon him. This is the good news of the gospel of the incarnated God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ.